just want to welcome you. We are in the last week of a series in which we've been clarifying uh, our church's vision by highlighting the significance of the cross to our vision. We have this little tagline that you'll see often associated with, uh, with our logo or with our church's name, and it, and it says, this changes everything. And the this that we're referring to, of course, uh, is the cross of Jesus Christ. In the first week of this series, we talked about the offense of the cross of Christ. In fact, when you sing that song, Amazing Grace, and, and you sing that specific line that says, uh, Amazing Grace uh, saved a wretch like me, what you're singing about in that moment, when you're singing that line, is the offense of the cross. Because you might be, you might be a successful businessman, you might be an attorney, you might be an ex-law enforcement officer, you might be a stay-at-home mother of three children who volunteers at your kid's private Christian school. Or on the other hand, you might just be out of jail or in the throes of an addiction uh, on the street. Uh, you might be struggling with same-sex attraction. And yet all of us have to equally acknowledge that grace saved a wretch like me. That's the offense of the cross. Is that everybody's equal. That's the offense of the cross. That's what we talked about in the first week of the series. In the second week of the series, we spoke about the transformative power of the cross in the lives of individuals. And we talked about how the gospel changes people in a way that is distinctive from mere religion or, or self-help or anything else like that. And then last week, in the third week of the series, we talked about the fact that, uh, that the cross of Christ makes the community of Christ's followers radically different than any other community of people uh, uh, in the world. And part of that's because of the values that we hold inside the community. We talked about that last week, how different the values of the people inside the community are. We don't, we don't value the, some of the same things that people outside do, things like power, things like wealth and, and comfort and uh, uh, prestige and, and those kind of things. We don't value those things. We don't, we don't evaluate people on the basis of those things. That's part of it. But we also said that the cross of Christ makes us very different the community of Christ followers is different because of the way that we treat people outside the community of Jesus Christ. That's where we ended last week, and that's really what I want to where I want to go this morning. I want to end this series on uh, that issue of how we treat people outside the community of Jesus Christ. How different it is. I want to talk to you today about how the cross of Jesus Christ affects the way that we treat people outside the church. In other words in the city of Evansville and beyond. And I want to take you to a very well-known passage of Scripture this morning, a story that many of you will recognize. It's found in Luke chapter 10. If you have a Bible, turn with me uh, to Luke chapter 10, and we'll begin the reading uh, at verse 25. Luke chapter 10, verse 25. By the way, I should mention to you that we're going to start a new series next week. I guess we'll call it a mini-series because it's only going to last two weeks, but it's called The Kardashians. The Real Housewives and One Ancient Psalm. So make sure that you should be that you'll be here next week because it's going to be it's going to be an interesting series. So tell somebody about it and bring them. Uh, the Kardashians, The Real Housewives, and One Ancient Psalm. But that's next week. Just a word about the setting of Luke chapter ten uh, as you turn. This story that Jesus is about to tell comes out of one of the many attempts that religious experts made. Uh, to trap Jesus into saying something that would show what they perceived was his low regard for the law, for the Mosaic law that God had given Israel. Um, you're going to see in just a moment that there is this guy who is an expert in this law, and he's trying to trap Jesus into saying something. See, religious leaders of Jesus' day were not all that different from religious leaders today. They believed that religion was a matter of obeying the law of Israel, 
much like religious leaders today would often uh, say that, that, you, that you know, they have some code of conduct that you have to make sure that you obey in order to be saved. But that's not what Jesus taught. He did not teach that. Jesus held the law of Israel in the highest regard. In fact, he held it in such high regard that he said that no one but him could measure up to its standards. And that salvation came through trust in him and his obedience to the law, not through my obedience to the law. But this caused the religious leaders to suspect that he didn't really hold the law in high esteem. If you would look at verse 25, verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, right away, there, there are a couple of problems here. The first is that this guy wants to test Jesus. Not a great plan to try to test Jesus. Um, some of you guys may remember when the NBA 2K14 uh, was released, there was this promotional interview with Michael Jordan uh, on the front of this thing in which Jordan uh, was talking about something that had happened at one of his basketball camps. I don't know if you're familiar with this or not, but one, one year, a high school kid at that time who was named O.J. Mayo, he was a top high school basketball player in the country that year. He plays with the, the Bucks now, but that year he was a high school kid. And at this camp, O.J. Mayo starts trash-talking Michael Jordan. Like, he... A high school kid telling Michael Jordan, and he was, he was saying stuff like, you can't guard me, you can't stop me, you can't score on me, that kind of stuff. So Jordan tells a story about how he sent all of the campers to bed except Mayo and the staff of the camp. And they decided to get together a scrimmage, and Jordan was going to guard Mayo. And he said to Mayo, he said, listen, you may be the best high school player in the country, but I'm the best player in the world. So everything from here on out is going to be school for you. And the kid never scored another point on Jordan. Didn't score a point that whole scrimmage because that's what Jordan could do. Well, whatever this expert in the law thought that he was, he's about to get schooled by Jesus because Jesus is like the ultimate expert in the law because he is the embodiment of the law. You see, everything about Jesus, he is the embodiment. He is the one who will fulfill uh, the law. Okay, so that's problem number one. Problem number one is that this guy wants to test Jesus. Problem number two is that if you noticed, he asked, what must I do? Did you notice that? What must I do to inherit eternal life? You see the emphasis, right? The emphasis is on what he is going to do, not on what Jesus is going to do. What must I do? Do you see the emphasis? Nod your head. Okay, good, good, good. I just want to make sure you're with me. Okay, look at verse 26. Jesus asks a question. What is written in the law? He replied. Notice, by the way, that Jesus answers this guy's question with a question and then another question, which is a great debate tactic, by the way. He says, how do you read it? What is written in the law? How do you read it? And this guy answers. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbor as yourself. So he's quoting two passages of the scripture that summarize the heart of Israel's law. Everything that was written in the law was about that. Love the Lord your God, love your heart, your mind, your soul, and all your strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. That's essentially what the law was about. Okay? Jesus answers him. He says, you have answered correctly. And then he says something that I think probably surprises some of you. And I bet it surprised this teacher of the law. He says, do this... And you will live. 
wait a minute, I, I thought salvation wasn't about what I do, but what Jesus did. If that's the case, why is Jesus saying to this guy, do that, do this, and you will live? But there's a certain, there's a little cheekiness here about Jesus' answer. He's, it's a little like, it's a little like he's saying to the guy, yeah, yeah, dude, do that. Yeah, you do that and you'll live. Jesus wants this so-called expert in the law to realize that it's, that it's, that it's him, the so-called expert, who has low regard for the law. Not Jesus. If this guy really understood what the law said, he would be on his knees begging for mercy in front of Jesus. Completely crushed by the demands that the law puts on his life. Um, He would understand that he could never love God 100% of the time with all of his strength and with 100% of his soul, and with 100% of his mind, and that he doesn't love his neighbor with 100% of the energy and strength and eagerness and willingness and emotional energy with which which he meets his own needs, he would understand that. If he really understood the law and regarded it as highly as Jesus did, he would say, Lord, have mercy on me. I can't do this. I can't save myself by my own righteousness. The law is far too much for me. Uh, Woe is me. I am cursed. And Jesus would have said, uh, you're right. But God in his mercy has sent me to do for you what you could never do for yourself. That's the way this conversation should have gone. But that's not what the expert in the law says. That's not how he responds. Uh, Look at what the text says in verse 29. It says, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Let's stick with the first part of that statement for just a moment. Uh, But he wanted to justify himself. You know what that means, right, about wanting to justify himself? We've we've all uh, done this before. You have to, maybe you've been in a situation where you, you know, you have to or you feel the need to prove to someone that you're right. That whatever it is that you're being accused of, that they're not right about that. They're wrong about that. Like, like, no, I did not get up in the middle of the night last night and eat that last piece of pumpkin pie. I went straight to bed. Uh, I slept through the night. That wasn't me that did that. I mean, you know what I'm saying? Where you feel like you've got to justify yourself? Well, that's exactly where this guy is. Uh, he feels the need to justify himself. But he, but he has, he, he's got to ask a question To justify himself. And notice the question. Who is my neighbor? Why? Why that question? Why is he asking that? You see, like any like any good lawyer, what he's what he's seeking to do is he wants to limit his liability. He's got to narrow down the definition of neighbor. So that he might just be able to just get underneath the requirements of the law. Just to slide in underneath the requirements of the law. In other words, Jesus, it's like he's saying, Jesus, look, let's, 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 let's be reasonable here. Let's have a conversation about this neighbor thing. There are some people that I just couldn't possibly be expected to consider my neighbor. Um, look, there are some dirty, filthy, vile people out there. And they don't all live in Washington, D.C. Some of them are right here uh, around me. 
They don't look like me. They don't believe what I believe. They don't value what I value. They don't go to temple where I go to temple. Some of them don't even go to temple at all. In other words, what he's asking is, how broadly are you defining this neighbor thing? Because, look, there are some people that I just shouldn't have to consider my neighbor. And it's that question that he's asking. What he's, what he's really asking is, is, what kind of love does God require? How broad is the definition of neighbor? What kind of love does God require in order for me to have met the law? And Jesus answers with a story, verse 30. In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes. They beat him. And they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest, a Jewish priest, happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too, a Levite, kind of a junior priest. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him. And bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put a man on his he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and he gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense that you may have. And then Jesus asks this question Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? And the expert in the law replied, And you can't see it. But I'll explain it in a moment. But read it almost with a gritting teeth. Oh, the one who had mercy on him. That's how, he, that's how he said it. And Jesus said, go and do likewise. Now, two points today that I want to make. And let me just start with this. Under, make sure you understand this. Jesus is, Jesus is not. He is not teaching that social compassion is the way to be saved. He's not teaching that. What he is teaching is that social compassion is an expression of real faith in Christ. Now make sure you understand the difference here. He's not saying that social compassion is the way to be saved, but he's saying it's an expression. Social compassion is an expression of real faith in Christ. Imagine, just for a moment, imagine you got two trees standing next to each other. Pretend like it's the middle of the summer. I know it's not, but pretend like it is. One tree is full of leaves. The other has no leaves. Which one's alive? Okay, the one with leaves. That's right. Uh, Do the leaves give the tree life? No, no. They just demonstrate that the tree is alive, right? Okay, same thing here. Social compassion is not the way to be saved. It's just a demonstration that a person is saved. That's all it is. You see the difference? Okay. Now, this might be a surprise to you that Jesus would place such an emphasis on social compassion. You see, there are often people in churches that have a sense that there are certain things that are really important in Christianity, like attending church, um, having devotionals, Uh, world missions, uh, evangelizing, worshiping, you know, things like that. People often think, well, those are the real critical things. But social compassion is often kind of seen as a nice optional thing, but not nearly as important as that other stuff. 
And yet here in this passage, I want you to see when Jesus wants to give an expert in the law a lesson on the kind of love that God requires, the kind of life that God requires, he turns to social compassion. And I wonder if that surprises any of you. In fact, if you would just notice the kinds of needs the Samaritan in this story meets for the man who's been beaten. He gives him medical assistance. He bandages his wounds and treats them with with oil and, and wine. He gives the man a financial subsidy to put him up in the inn. He stays overnight with the man to give him friendship and compassion and protection. And he gives him transportation, puts puts him on his donkey and takes him. This man was destitute. He was left for dead, unable to take care of himself. And yet the hero in Jesus' story takes care of all of that stuff. Doesn't say, doesn't, doesn't even say whether, you know, that he evangelized the guy or anything like that. It just, just says that he, he met all of those needs for this, this man. You see, social compassion is one of the results of the cross of Christ. The community of Jesus Christ has a new love for people, even those people who are still outside the community of Jesus Christ. We care about their physical and emotional needs as much as we care about our own physical and emotional needs. And we care about their physical and emotional needs as much as we care about their spiritual needs. You could even say that the cross of Christ, you could even say it this way, that the cross of Christ makes us promiscuous with our generosity and our compassion. We take care of people not only in our own community, but people outside of our community too. And I, I'm going I'm to tell you guys, that I, I'm, I'm not saying this to brag about uh, City Church. I'm not saying this to draw attention to ourselves. But I do want you to, to know this. We started as a church on July 14th. So what does that, what does that put us? Let's see, August, September, October. What is, is that about four months? Is that about what you get, four months? Did I add that up wrong? Let's see, August, September, October. So about four months that we've been around, right? Okay, nod your heads and say right. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, in that four-month period of time, we've already done two house projects for people outside our community. We had a group walk in the Coleman Race for the Cure. We've started a relationship with an inner city school, Lincoln School, that we're buying books for. We've launched a ministry called Second Chances for people who are transitioning back into civilian life after incarceration. And we started a recovery ministry for anyone in the city that meets in the Evansville Rescue Mission. Now, that's after, that's after just four months. Imagine how different the city might, be, might look in a year or two or ten years if we really put our hearts and minds and legs into creatively meeting the needs of our neighbors here in the city of Evansville and beyond. See, Jesus cares about this city and he cares about the people of the city and he cares about their physical needs and he cares about their emotional needs as well. And he cares about their spiritual needs, no question. But he cares about all that other stuff too. And because of that, so do we as a church. 
And folks, there's so much more that we can do and so much more that we want to do. And I'll, I'll talk about some of that in just a moment. But I want you to know that we've just begun to scratch the surface of the needs here in the city of Evansville. There's much more to do. And there's a place for you to be a part of that too. There's something else here though that I want you to see in this story. And I want you to notice that Jesus makes the hero of this story a Samaritan. Now the reason that's critical is that uh, many of you will remember that the Jews, you might remember this from when you were a kid, some of you, that the Jews and the Samaritans hated each other. Jews considered the Samaritans kind of a kind of a half-breed Jew who had, in their minds, some very suspect beliefs. And the most, in fact, the most derogatory statement a Jew could make about another Jew was to call him a Samaritan. Like, if you were really mad at another Jew, you might say, you know, you're a Samaritan. And that, that was the worst thing that you could say. There's nothing worse. In fact, if you just think of the worst slur that you could imagine hearing today, someone calling you, that's the force of a Jew calling another Jew a Samaritan. And in fact, you notice, I said it at the end of the story, that Jesus asks this Jewish expert in law, who is the hero of the story? And this guy can't even bring himself to utter the words, the Samaritan. That's, he, all he can say is, the one who had mercy on him. Because it it's like despicable to even utter that phrase. By having a Samaritan have pity on a Jew, Jesus is not only exposing the self-righteousness of this particular expert in the law, who would have never done what the Samaritan did for the Jew. I mean, Jesus would have, excuse me, this Jew would have never done that for a Samaritan. Even though he thinks he can justify himself by the law, he would have never done that. But Jesus is doing more than just exposing his self-righteousness. He's also explaining to him the parameters of this love your neighbor as yourself. Because you remember, what he wanted to do was limit the parameters of that. Lord, you know, you, it can't be anybody. It is just certain people. And Jesus says, you want to know what the parameters are of love your neighbor as yourself? And tell me if you still think you can measure up to the law. Your neighbor is anyone in your path. Raise your hand here today if you feel like you could say that you love anyone and everyone in your path just like you love yourself. Raise your hand. I can't. And neither can anyone else. Jesus says your neighbor is anyone in your path. Anyone. Jew. Gentile. Samaritan. Black. White, I say this seriously, east side, west side, and I I mean that. Just out of jail, Christian, Muslim, poor, rich. You see, this is what the love of Jesus is. This is what the cross of Christ does to people. When we experience his love through the cross, all of our prejudices are changed. It softens hearts. It destroys biases. It tears down walls. 
everywhere. I want you to understand that the point of this passage is not that when you walk out of the center this morning and someone on the street asks you for a dollar, the point is not that you have to give it because somebody asked you. There wouldn't be anything wrong with it if you did. That's not the point. The point of this passage is that you're supposed to recognize that there is no limiting who your neighbor is to just the people that you feel comfortable with. Your neighbor includes even the people who despise you or who you, if left to yourself, would naturally despise. Now, who might that include? Maybe it would be. Maybe it would include a Muslim for you. Maybe for you it would include someone who's gay. Maybe you've been an ardent pro-life advocate and there's a woman in your office who's a strident supporter of abortion. Your neighbor, Jesus, is telling us, is anyone in your path? Look, if you walk away this morning and you feel guilty and pressured that, oh man, I've got to work up more compassion and more love for people and more love for my enemies and the people that I wouldn't naturally love. Well, I'm, if, that's the way you, you're, if, if that's the way you leave today, you're missing the significance of the cross. Because look, if you've believed in, in Christ, the, the cross of Jesus Christ has already changed you. You've, you've been changed. That love and that compassion is already there. It's already there on the hard drive of your soul. You just, you just have to learn to yield to that love rather than your own natural biases. And... As a result of the cross of Christ, I want you to know that you have power. You, you have power in your hands. Now, I recognize that most people here probably don't feel like that you have much power because you live in a culture in which you know, you, you're always seeing, you know, the culture always shows you people who are two rungs up the ladder from you, so everybody in our culture always feels like a victim. And instead of looking down two rungs below you, you're always looking two rungs above, and you're, you're, you're saying, well, why can't I live like them? I mean, you know, why don't I have that? If I had that, then I'd have power. Well, let me tell you something. You have power. You have power. And by that, what I mean is that you have talents, and you have abilities, and you have connections, And you have money, maybe not much, but you have some money. What Jesus would say is, find some people who are within your power to help. Find somebody who's within your power to help. That's what the people of the cross do. And we do it not just for people who are in the community of Christ, the local church, but we also do it for people who are outside the community of Jesus Christ. Now, as a church, we're we're helping some people, as I I mentioned before. But I want to tell you something. I, I think that there are still a lot of neighbors of City Church that we have the power to help that we're not yet helping. And they might be different kind of people than you would think. Uh, Let me mention a few that are on my mind this morning. And, you know, God may lead us to do other things. I'm not saying that he won't. But these are some people that are on my mind that I I think we're not helping yet as a church, that we should be. 
Because remember, our neighbor is anyone that's in our path. Like, for instance, the students and the faculty at U of E and USI and Ivy Tech and the local medical community, many of whom have come to believe that science and education, excuse me, that science and Christianity uh, can't go hand in hand. What are we doing to help them? They're our neighbors. What if we sponsored a lecture every year in which we brought in some nationally known, very high caliber, very respected scientists and physicians who are also Christians, and we had them speak to an issue of faith and science and how to think through issues of faith and science, and we did it for their benefit. They're our neighbors. What about doing that kind of thing? Could we sponsor a couple of science or math students, people who really excel in those things, and maybe even pay their tuition through four years of some great school around the country, whether the student knows Christ or not? Could we do that? Because we just want to get behind that. We want to get behind people. Could we maybe do those kind of things? And what about the successful business people here who'd like to, you know, they want to grow their businesses more. Could we sponsor seminars and luncheons by experts in their fields to help them grow their businesses, which in turn often, you know, hire more workers and blesses the city? Could we do that kind of thing? And what about the wealthy people of Evansville who are neighbors, some of whom, not all of them, but some of whom, are impoverished of soul because they're counting on their wealth to save them. What are we doing to help those poor souls? Do we recognize that Christ loves those people too? And do we recognize that they need the cross of Jesus Christ? Do we love them? Do we care about them? Or do we, or do we, are we guilty of some kind of reverse discrimination where we, we don't really love wealthy people because we think, well, they've got so much, they must be snobs, they think they've got it all together, and we somehow don't love them, but we do love those who are broken and hurting and, and, and maybe down and out or down on, the, down on their luck or, or whatever. We love those people, but we don't really love the, the wealthy people. Why not both? Because both are our neighbors. We can't, we can't limit. We can't limit. We, in this room, in this church, we have the power to help a lot of people. It might be through money. It might be through contacts to get something done. It might be, you know, might be the talent that you have. I, I, I don't know. I just know that there's a lot of people yet, a lot of neighbors in the city of Evansville and beyond, that we're, we're not yet helping. There's so much more that we could be doing. And look, I, you know, I, I will tell you that I mention all of this um, as we go into year end because I know that there are many of you who are deciding right now where you will be giving your year end contributions. We've had a very successful launch as a church, but our minds, as you hopefully can kind of see just from listening to me in the last few minutes, our minds are full of what still needs to be done, and the fields here are white for the harvest. And if you would like to give, if you'd like to bless City Church at your end with a very generous gift to enable us to do some of the things that I talked about earlier, we would very much appreciate that. I want to mention... uh, I want to mention something else. I, I asked our leadership team this week to begin praying about a more permanent and visible location for City Church. 
It might not be a forever home for a city church, but it might be a place that we could be for a few years where we don't have to put up and tear down each week and where we can kind of, you know, decorate the place on our own. Is that the right word, decorate? I don't know, but you know what I'm talking about. Make it kind of our own and, and personalize it. That's the word I was looking for, personalize it. And I know that would cost some money. Uh, I know that. Um, but we're praying because we know that God can do anything. And we think that there are still a lot of neighbors that we don't get to meet because they don't know where we are. And if we had a much more visible place, we might meet some more neighbors whom we could show uh, love and compassion to. And so we're praying for that. We'd also like to bring on some more staff to be able to handle some strategic areas of our ministry. But that takes resources as well. All I'm saying is that as you consider your year in giving, please consider that you could make some ministry possible that hasn't been possible yet if you were to give to City Church. I just want to close with this. The story that Jesus tells is not ultimately about what we do, but it's ultimately about where Jesus was going when he told the story and what he was going to do for us. The moment that Jesus tells this story, if you read the whole gospel of Luke, Jesus at this very moment, when he tells this, is headed to the cross where Jesus would become the ultimate good Samaritan. See, when Jesus ends this story by telling this expert in the law, go and do likewise. You go love like the Samaritan in my story. This guy should have bowed before Jesus and said, that kind of love isn't in me. I can't do that. Lord, change me. But he doesn't do that. See, only one person has ever loved like this good Samaritan in the story. There's only been one good Samaritan, Jesus. Jesus came along and he stopped for me when nobody else would and nobody else could heal me. He gets down off of his horse and he carries me and he befriends me and he, be, and he binds my wounds and by his stripes I have been healed and he pays all of my debts all in one shot. He pays for it himself and he goes after the despised and he goes after the broken and he goes after the bleeding and he goes after the dead when no one else does. Jesus is the ultimate good Samaritan. And look, here's the thing. If he did it for me, I want to be a good Samaritan for the city of Evansville and beyond. Not out of guilt, not out of pressure, but out of just love for Jesus and thankfulness that he was my good Samaritan. And I want to be a good Samaritan for some people. Not out of my limited capacity to love, but out of Jesus' unlimited capacity to love anyone. That's what I want to be, a good Samaritan. I believe that the cross can change this city because it has changed me. How about you? We're going to celebrate communion together as a church. And as we celebrate communion, we're celebrating the fact that Jesus was the ultimate good Samaritan. His body broken, his blood shed for me. And I think it's appropriate at the end of a series like this one that we've been doing, this, this vision series, I think it's appropriate that we come together as a community and we, we say together, yes, we believe that the cross changes everything. It changes me, it changes us, and it can even change the city of Evansville. That's part of what you're saying when you, when you take communion here. 
You're saying, yeah, I believe that the cross of Christ is the hope of this city. It changed me. It changed me. So what they're going to do is they're going to...